So, uh, Terry McMahon, thank you very much for coming in today to doing the, uh, the interview with us. Um, as you've described from your early years, um, they were quite challenging from recent interviews that you've done in the past. Uh, can you tell us a little about that period when you were growing up? Uh, I presume you're asking about being homeless. Uh, I was homeless for about a year or thereabouts. And how is it formative? I presume you're asking. Uh, one of the things about being homeless that you learn very fast is that loneliness is like a cancer, except it's a contagious cancer. People sense it, they smell it, they feel it and they want to get as far away from it as possible. So I suppose that informs everything I write, which is usually about somebody who's profoundly lonely, somebody who is so disenfranchised or so removed from reality, either by choice or uh, because of other circumstances outside themselves. But it, it, it formed a real passionate desire to explore the disenfranchised, to explore the separation between illusion and reality, to explore the political reality of what it's like to be invisible in your own life, in your own town, in your own country. And I think that permeates through everything I've written so far. During that, um, that time that you were homeless, you, uh, you recorded conversations with some of the homeless people that you met at yeah. the time. Um, do you still have the tapes? No, sadly, and this is the kind of thing where you go, what kind of fucking moron was I? But um, at the time, there was a whole bunch of hobos, as they would be called, and they um, they kind of adopted me. I was very, very young, and they were never a threat to me at any stage. And I used to, I bought a little dictaphone, but it was a dictaphone that had a three and a half inch tapes. And I bought one of those in a secondhand shop even though I had no money, I for, for decided to forego food to get this thing, and I started recording our conversations. And I had this build-up of tapes, and I thought, okay, I don't know if I can ever be a writer. I don't know if I even have that birthright or even that uh, ability on any level. But I was fascinated by the idea of going, okay, these are people who exist in a realm of remove that most of us have no idea of. And I had seen the Lomax Brothers stuff that had, had been recorded. I'd rented them out in the library and all that kind of stuff. And I suppose a part of me had this idea that perhaps I was some kind of archivist on a simple level. And then a, a short while later, uh, my whole world fell asunder, like it happens to a lot of people. And I decided to get rid of everything. And one of the things I stupidly got rid of was those tapes. So everything I owned was in a small bag. And anything that didn't fit in that bag was gotten rid of. So it was this idiotic notion that somehow if you erase the past, your future might be better. So no, stupidly, I don't have the tapes. Have you met anybody since? I mean, that you were, you know, on the street with? Have you, have you... Only one. Every one of the rest of them are dead. Uh, I used to go to the prisons for them to deliver email, or not emails, Jesus, that's a different world, to deliver letters from the lawyers and stuff. But one of them I met years later, a beautiful man, actually, who had a life, who had children, who had all those things. And I met him with his son, curiously enough, who was a grown-up man at the time. And he introduced me as if we had an extraordinary history. He introduced me with such pride to his son. And I remembered sitting with that same man outside a bank on the main road in Rathmines. And I had been arrested and all that kind of stuff, and uh, the police were quite dodgy on multiple levels but 
Um, because I was with these men, I was seen as being very, very suspect. But we were sitting there, and it was the afternoon, and we were drinking. And I wasn't a heavy drinker. I didn't really know what I was doing, but this was a world I was immersed in at the time. And he said to me, I watch all these people as they're passing by. In the, it's about half five in the afternoon. And they're all going home to their busy houses from their busy jobs and their busy lives. And he says, they all look down on me, and they look at me with sometimes scorn, sometimes disgust, even sometimes with sympathy. And he says, what none of them seem to understand is that I have known passion in my life that they will never know. I remember being blown away by that at the time, literally blown away. And that's the specificity of his language, that he has known passion in his life that they will never know. And to meet him all those years later and to see him with his son, and he, you know, he was still fucked up through booze, he was all those things, but the, the uninhibited love he showed me and the pride with which he introduced me to his son, as if these two people were meeting because of the decency of him, and you realize that's what happened. This remarkable man... So that was a few years ago, but the rest of them, all the rest of them are dead. Can I ask how you, um, how you came out of that? How, how did you, I suppose for want of a better phrase, how did you get to where you are now? Uh, you mean having my home repossessed by the banks? Because that's where I am now. That's where you're at it right now. That's the reality, yeah. Full circle. The scum banks and the, what they set in motion and how they have stolen our family home. That's literally what's happening in my life right this second. I have a meeting later this afternoon with lawyers, and the lawyers are in a state of incomprehension at how the banks are allowed to behave the way they're behaving now, and it's because the courts are facilitating them, the government are facilitating them, and now I'm in a position where, having spent years and years of earnings, over 200,000 of my money, real physical cash, I'm about to have my home taken off me. So it's one of those bizarre things that you ask the question at this moment of all times. But how do you get out of it? I ended up living in a series of bedsits. I was too young to get the doll at the time. And uh, on my 18th birthday, I signed on the doll. Literally on my 18th birthday. That's how I celebrated my 18th fucking birthday. But uh, I don't mean that as a whine. I'm just, it's interesting that you go, okay, what are you doing on your birthday? Where are you going? I go to the fucking doll office. So I signed on and uh, you were allowed to get rent allowance at the time. And I got a room for 11 pounds a week. And that room became a whole series of rooms over a period of time. And literally, you, you don't know how to talk to people. You don't know how to engage. I had a stammer as well. I had all that kind of crap. Being to sound like fucking Forrest Gump here, but I had all that <laughs> stuff. And I didn't know how to engage at all. And it's back to that thing of loneliness being a cancer. I used to hang around Stevens Green and just be embarrassed and walk. Just walk because you didn't want people seeing you engage in the patterns of the cancer of loneliness. And then eventually... Uh, bizarrely and perversely and incomprehensibly I saw an advertisement for Dublin Youth Theatre and I remember feeling sickened in my stomach with fear at even the prospect of it but it was an open call advertisement and I talked myself out of it a million different ways but I also knew that if I didn't do something I was going to be even more invisible than I was Had you ever acted before? Not at all, good God no, nothing Again, you don't come from that birthright. You don't have any of that background. My old man adored movies, so I was inculcated into the world of movies in terms of adoration, but never in terms of being somebody who would have aspired to become directly involved as a as a practitioner. Uh, and I went to that audition, and uh, I remember being terrified 
beyond anything I'd experienced before. And I'd been in extreme violence, I'd been in extreme circumstances, I'd lived on the streets, I'd done all those things, and none of them compared to the fear of being in a fucking open audition room. And uh, they accepted me, and I went to a couple of their classes, and then I left, because I hated it. Not just for any fault of theirs, but because I just didn't know how to engage. And a guy was there, he met me, and uh, he said, there's a school, a vocational school, that has taken people as part of a full-time course. You should come down. I went down. I could barely speak. Uh, they accepted me, and I was so terrified. They, they accepted me late, and I was so terrified that uh, it was an after-lunch the first class was after lunch and I went to a bar and I drank four pints of Guinness back to back just out of sheer fear and went into the first class and there were some of the most remarkable people in the world in that class some of whom one of whom is Jimmy Fay, who is now the great director in the Abbey and he's running the National Theatre up in Northern Ireland uh, Ken Harmon the brilliant writer Jimmy is godfather to my kid Ken is godfather to my other kid and it just became one of those things where I was lucky enough to meet some of the most remarkable people and develop some of the most remarkable long-term, lifelong friendships with artists. And I think that's literally the, the cliched notion, but it saved my fucking life. Great. Um, through, the, um, through your acting uh, resume, you have played quite a, um, quite a few parts. Is there any um, parts in particular that you've favourite? No, they're all shit. They're all just fucking ridiculous. <laughs> all this fucking stuff of getting cast as a psychopath and a rapist and all that nonsense. I don't know where they get it from. I don't know where they think it's coming from, but it was always just embarrassing. Was there a particular part that you'd like to play then? Uh, father, an ordinary guy. A fucking simple, ordinary guy, perhaps, yeah. I was, I was fascinated by what actors have to go through. I was fascinated by, firstly, why most acting seemed to be awful in Irish movies and Irish television and fucking god-awful. It's thankfully subsequently changed, but um, I wanted to know how to work with actors. I wanted to know what they had to go through, and the only way to know what they have to go through is to put yourself through it. Actually, and I'm being unfair, Paul Fraser did a film called My Brothers, and Paul Fraser was the writer for a lot of Shane Meadows' movies in England, some of the greatest films I've ever seen. And Paul directed a script by Will Collins called My Brothers, and in that, perversely, I played a, a, a pedophile, but it's the only thing, it's the only part of acting where I went, okay, for the first time I'm, I'm doing something that's potentially very interesting. But outside that, I played nothing but cliches and stereotypes and embarrassing fucking nonsense. How about Batman Begins? I oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> well, forget about the part then. Um... No, I'll tell you about Batman Begins. Batman Begins has paid me so much fucking money, it defies comprehension. I was little more than a glorified extra. I remember walking on... Uh, I'd been cast in Batman, Batman Begins and I remember going over to England and Killian Murphy was there and Christian Bale was there and his whole setup was there and I, they put me in a SWAT uniform and uh, I was brought into a room and suddenly there's 200 guys in SWAT uniforms and I'm supposed to be their leader and every single one of them would have broke me in half. They were all bodybuilders, they were all fucking fighting guys, they were all powerhouse men. And I'm standing there in the middle of them looking like a 13-year-old kid with no fucking chin with a big SWAT hat on me trying to give them orders. I just went, film is insane. <laughs> um, did you get to meet Christopher Nolan? I did, yeah. What's he like? Cool as fuck. Yeah? Actually, um, his, his DP is really beautiful, Wally, Wally Fisher. Mm. Uh, just really cool. His wife is his producer, so you're talking about a completely relaxed set. Um, you know, he's, he's, you're talking about a, a visionary filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about, uh, from my limited experience, you're talking about a, a very, very... Decent guy. All three of them. The wife, the DP, and the director. 
you're watching the three of them together going, these people are, it's no mistake and no accident that these people are making humanist cinema because they seem to be remarkable humanists. Cool. Um, what do you find the most challenging about an actor's life? Are you broke all the fucking time? You're paranoid. You, uh, I actually, I, and I'm not just saying this, I genuinely believe, you know, I know they don't go and fight wars or any of that kind of shit, but I genuinely believe that actors are the bravest society I've ever met as a, as a society. You know, there are some prima donna wankers, there's all that kind of stuff, but there are far fewer than you think. Far fewer than we're conditioned to believe. I think what an actor has to go through on a daily basis in private to aspire to being what they want to be is terrifying. I don't know how they do it. Then secondary to that, how they take a text from someone like Shakespeare or, you know, Tom Murphy, how they take that text and how they just, the basic fundamental monkey see, monkey do stuff of learning it, but then turning it into something profound every night or turning it into something profound every take on camera. I don't know how they do it. They're alchemists. They're magicians. The best of them are astonishing. And... I would love to be, I'd love to be in a position where I could facilitate that kind of magic. And I feel that uh, I'm, I'm more excited working with actors as a facilitator rather than being one. And it's not because I have some kind of problem or some kind of fear. It's because I just feel that the majesty of acting and witnessing that acting and being somehow the facilitator as well as a witness, few things excite me more. Can you, um, can you describe your, uh, your style of directing? Um, uh, I suppose sometimes I'm a prick, like anybody, but a uh, style of directing. I think for me, the most exciting thing, firstly, is I, I do believe, I don't believe actors are interpretive artists. I believe they're creative artists. I think that's very, very important. Because interpretive is reductionist, and I believe that what actors do at the moment of creation is not an interpretation. It is making magic making something out of nothing. It is alchemy. And my style of directing is, I can't think of anything that excites me more when I can shut the fuck up and just witness it happening. When you're sitting there so giddy with excitement because the actor is doing something that makes the entire crew stop breathing. I can't think of anything that excites me more. I like empowering actors to make choices beyond the obvious. I like empowering actors, even because I've only, I've directed other material, but in terms of film, I've only directed my own material, and I, I'm not, I, I structure scripts very meticulously, and the language in particular is very meticulous, but I, I'm not interested in replicating what I think I've heard in my head. I can't understand a director, and I understand and admire some of them, but I can't understand personally why a director would try to replicate something that was in their head. To me, that's masturbation. <laughs> Whereas the idea of being in an orgy where you have no idea what the hell is going to happen next and the actor is pulling stuff that you can't believe is happening around you and the structure and form is still intact, but it has been elevated. So my style of directing, if there is a style, is hopefully bearing humble witness to something much bigger and much better than I ever thought. Um, Moving on to Charlie Casanova. We have a quote here that says, uh, Charlie Casanova is an angry film made by an angry man. Is that a fair description? Who said that? My mother? No, we can't. Who, who actually did say that? Um, it was the Cinema Ireland review. I don't know. Ch- Charlie Kastanov is one of those weird fucking movies that I made it for next to nothing and I made it... Yeah, I was angry. Still, I'm angry. Angry as hell. And 
we tried to make a the equivalent of a punk rock movie. We tried to make a movie that was, again, I've been through this. I, I try and keep it very simple. I'm a, the Aristotelian construct is what we use in standard three act structure. I write a lot for other people, all that kind of stuff. This was an an aberration, a deliberate aberration. It was as if you were playing punk rock music to somebody who's only listening to classical music. I'm a huge fan of classical music, but also sometimes punk rock needs to kick in the doors. And this film was an attempt at that punk rock filmmaking. What happened, perversely, was the film was largely ignored until suddenly it was picked up for competition in South by Southwest. And suddenly you got this major international festival and these major people behind it saying that this is a visionary piece of cinema, cinema of the future, so on and so forth. And Which is high praise from South by Southwest. But then suddenly at home, you got the Irish Times, you got the uh, RT, you got Joe Duffy, you got these people who engage in a, a strange campaign to not just destroy it, but also present you as a complete moron, as a filmmaker. So that quote that you're saying, an angry film from an angry man, is one of the least offensive things said. There was stuff said about me, again, on public forums, but also on national broadcasters, that in any other context, like there was stuff said about Mary Harney and the station had to pay out 450000 to her. There was much worse stuff said about me on the same radio station, and no one gave a damn. So Charlie Casanova is a film about the ruling class and about how the ruling class have corrupted and destroyed us. And at the time when I talked about the ruling class, I was accused of being a moron. Now the ruling class, the, the manifestation of their philosophies and their politics is raping the country on every level. And Charlie Casanova looks like a naive cartoon compared to the reality of what these scum are doing. So I've no regrets about the film. I, I, nothing prepared us for the level of personal assault that was going to take place. Nothing prepared us for the level of lies that were going to be presented as fact. And sadly, nothing prepared us for the actuality that I had no comeback. I had no right of reply. I had no right of reply on the radio, no right of reply with the Irish Times, no right of reply anywhere. And when you suddenly realize that you've made a punk rock movie that was picked up by Studio Canal, one of the major distributors in the world, and they pick up this film, and suddenly even they start to lose their courage because they can't believe that in the 40 years of business they've never seen an onslaught like it. And suddenly you go, okay, this is 90 minutes of fiction, for God's sake. Since when did 90 minutes of fiction become so cancerous and disturbing that conventional conservative society feels the need to eradicate it. So Charlie Casanova is one of those strange things that, you know, some people claim that there's a revisionism that will take place and so on and so forth. The bottom line is that it nearly killed my reality. It, they, they, the small coterie of critics who decided that it would be worthy of attacking on every level destroyed it in its opening week in the cinema. And... Uh, I'm now in a position where I've made a second film and I'm sure there are people who will go, this is the same prick I made Charlie Casanova. I can't wait to beat the shit out of him again. But do you think that's extremely unfair? I, like, I, I understand extremely where you're coming unfair. from. Well, no, I know, yeah. Fairness is not part of these people's notion of engagement. No, but I mean, even for myself, when I looked at it, I said, no, I'll be completely honest with you. There wasn't mm. a lot of it that struck a chord with me. Mm. But um, especially from film critics looking at something like this, I would have thought that they'd look at it and say, well, look, it's a piece of art, as all film is. You look at it and you say to yourself, you have to be subjective and look at these things and say, right, well, look past the stuff that I don't believe in and, and go with that. But they didn't. And, and like you said, it was, it was quite an onslaught. 
Well, I think the difference is that everyone's entitled to an opinion. You didn't like the movie. That doesn't bother me in the slightest. I think you and I could have a great conversation about what the movie is about and why you didn't like it. And I would find that exciting. I wouldn't find it oppressive or offensive. I wouldn't find it any of those things. The kind of people that Charlie Casanova was about didn't really manifest in Irish society until later. You listen to the banking tapes. They talk exactly like Charlie Casanova. Their language, the structure of their language is exactly like Charlie. The level of fantasy is, is exactly like Charlie. Charlie Casanova exists in a realm where he knows enough about narrative, knows enough about our presumption of narrative as real people, that he can exploit our innate decency and he can exploit our presumptive notion that there is justice, that there is fairness, that there is decency, that there is honor. Exactly what the government are doing on a daily basis. So Charlie Casanova as a character is a manifestation of that fallacy. It's not supposed to be a movie that goes from A to B to C to D. It's supposed to be a subversion of all of that. Now, you and I discussing that as two people who love cinema, even if you hate the film, I think that's a great conversation to be had. I think the difference with the Irish Times and with the other coterie of scum is that their presumption that their position was the only position worth engaging in and that I was a complete fool and a moron and needed to be stopped. That's way beyond cinema. That's a political and cultural annihilation. And that fascism or that fascistic way of thinking is manifesting across the board on every level. And one of the strangest things of all is that now when you listen to those tapes being released, you hear that there's almost direct quotes. And not that anybody was quoting anybody, but you listen to this and you go, these guys actually speak in this way. These guys behave in this way. These guys are subhuman scum who dehumanized all of us and will continue to do so until we address it in some shape or form. And Charlie Casanova was an attempt to address it in a shape or form that was born out of something other than picking up a baseball bat or a bomb. And curiously enough, it became my own worst nightmare because the very things that, that Charlie Casanova is about, which is fallacy, which is a lie, which is you sitting there in a theater getting angry. Charlie Casanova was designed to make you angry. It was designed to piss you off. It was designed to make you go, what the fuck is this shit? That was its function. It wasn't designed to placate you or it wasn't designed to titillate you or stimulate you in the way that allows you the easy reprieve of going, yes, I understand the politics there. Yes, that makes sense. It wasn't a, what Richard did. It wasn't a case of going, okay, we're going to pretend to be about one thing, then be, in fact, an apologist for another thing, and then we can all move on and pretend we've gone through a cathartic experience. Charlie Casanova was the antithesis of that, and deliberately so. Do you think if, if, if it was released now, would there be a different reaction? Because we have just gone through the end of the trials and nobody's done You know, do you think at the time you were still very naive about what was happening? I think you'd be hated. It, one of the things is that I didn't make it easy to like me. Do you know what I mean? I decided, okay, to go Johnny Rotten on it or John Lydon on it to go down the line with it. And I realized that nobody was going to promote this film except me. So I was front row center at my own fucking funeral. But one of the things that I'd, I will say, and again, this is, this is not to... And by the way, when I talk about what Richard did, I don't mean that in any disrespectful way to the filmmaker or to the film. I'm talking about the things that, that as an audience that we find palatable. We find it easy to engage in something that lets us off at the end without any culpability. We find it easy to engage in things that anesthetize us by tickling our fucking genitals and then leaves us half satisfied and then walks away. But I do believe that if Charlie Casanova was made by Neil Jordan or if it was made by, by Lenny Abramson, it would have been re received in a profoundly different way. Part of the presumption was that who does this prick think he is? Who does this guy who came from nowhere, who is not part of the college or the collegiate, who 
have we've all protected? Who is this guy who thinks that he has the audacity to come out of nowhere and make a film that is picked up by Studio Canal and picked up in South by Southwest and then suddenly he's going to give a commentary on our culture? Who does this prick think he is talking about the ruling class? There is no such thing as a ruling class. Who does this prick think he's talking about Irish culture? This guy is a nobody. Who is he? So suddenly that presumption that you have the right to annihilate somebody because you don't know who they are or because you question their intellectual capacity or their intellectual credentials or their aesthetic credentials, that becomes part of the same oppressive system that Charlie Casanova is about. So everything that it was about ended up manifesting in the attacks against the film and me, but everything that it's about ended up manifesting in a much broader context in our culture, and we are doing even less about it. I'm just telling you here that as recently as this conversation, my home is about to be taken off me. What am I doing about it? So if I'm in the middle of it, and I'm in the middle of the attacks and I'm doing nothing, how do we expect a broader culture to do a damn thing? So if Charlie was released now, nobody would give a damn. There's the other side of it where I've received incredible emails from people and letters from people and conversations from people who were, were moved completely the opposite to how you were moved. There are people who despise the film and absolutely they're within their rights to do that. And absolutely they're in the rights to passionately despise it. I think that conversation is very exciting. There are also people who are passionate advocates of it and again, as equally passionate, but curious enough, they didn't become vociferous, or if they did, they were largely ignored. So a film that divided audiences ended up becoming a film that was despised by everybody and therefore destroyed. One of the questions we were just about to ask was how much of you is in Charlie, but I think we just, um, we've kind of got that over the last... No, but there's none of me in Charlie. I think Charlie's a piece of shit. I think, I think Charlie Casanova, Charlie Barnum, is an absolute piece of shit. There's nothing of me in him. And that was one of the things, part of the accusation is that, uh, firstly, like I was accused of being a misogynist. In the national media, I was accused of misogyny. I was accused of, you know, all the stuff of being a moron, all that kind of stuff was different, but I was accused of being deep, dark, and deranged. Like, these are things, I got three children. I got children listening to this, listening to their father be described as a woman-hating, deep, dark, disturbed individual. Now, in what context in our society is it fair, firstly, to take a separate, objective, 90-minute piece of work and accuse the person who is behind it of being any of those things. And yet they were allowed to do it because I was powerless and because they were powerful. There was nothing of me in Charlie. There was an articulation in Charlie that I find disturbing and that every line that he puts together is designed to manipulate and exploit and take from you whatever he can. I see our politicians doing it every day. I see our politicians being facilitated by our media doing it every day. And Charlie, I think, I'm, I'm hoping anyway, that in time you will look at Charlie and you will go, he's a Charlie Casanova. And I've had friends do it. I've had Charlie Casanova get into my taxi last night. Charlie Casanova came into the bar last night. That notion where you go, okay, these guys, these people, these subhuman people who look on all the rest of us as nothing more than marks, nothing more than things to be exploited and destroyed. That's what Charlie Casanova is. That's the antithesis of who I am and who I want to be and what I'm interested in. But the manifestation of taking your complete opposite political position and trying to create a character out of that was where Charlie Casanova came from. And yet the very thing that was the antithesis of me is the very thing I was accused of being. Your most recent film was um, St. Patrick's Day. Um, what inspired that story? I used to work with uh, so-called mentally handicapped people. That's what they were called at the time, an extraordinary phrase. But... I worked in mental health as a trainee nurse and uh, I was brought in as kind of a guinea pig um, in the history of the hospital. There was nobody, no males allowed on the female ward and they decided to try 
the skinny pig here, so they put me in the female ward. And uh, I used to see when the parents or the guardians would come in each weekend to visit the residents, or patients as they were called, um, you would see that there was a, an, a moral authority granted to you as a parent or as a guardian or as a minder that entitled you to effectively control every element of the person that you were supposed to be caring for. So in the same way as if you and I were in a situation of inequality and you had aspirations toward intimacy and I decided that those aspirations were inappropriate, I can shut them down instantly. And anything, any aspiration toward intimacy or towards sexuality or towards sensuality was completely shut down in the hospital instantly, as if it was an aberration, as if it was a danger. And you look at these so-called normal people who are entrusted with the care of these so-called abnormal people, and the normal people are exercising that moral authority in a way that is so repressive and so restrictive and so damaging that the very people who aspire toward intimacy are disenfranchised even more beyond their diagnosis or beyond their illness or beyond anything that a hospital is there to protect. And I knew that I wanted to write something about it. I knew I wanted to write something about this notion that we have the right, the moral authority to decide who's entitled to intimacy and who's not. It wasn't too long ago when homosexuality was deemed to be an illegal act, when that right to intimacy, that aspiration toward intimacy was deemed to be criminal, much less immoral. Now, thankfully, we've moved on to the degree where we've humanized ourselves enough to recognize that human beings are entitled to intimacy. And yet the same things that were robbed from homosexuals are still robbed on a daily basis from people who are diagnosed with mental illness. Do you think about something um, particular to Ireland? Think until the 70s, we had the highest number of people incarcerated in mental homes. And we do, it seems to be that despite all the media coverage and the willingness to talk about mental health, there's still a huge resistance at a kind of ground level. But in the media, it's being pushed, but at ground level, it's still very people back away from it and being able to handle it. And do you think that's something particular to Ireland? Well, even the media, like I don't know what push you're talking about. You know, there are there are campaigns that appear to be about the facilitation of engagement with mental health, but it's it's again it's masturbatory. It's it's about the celebration of the people who are behind the campaign, and not the celebration of the people who the campaigns are for. In terms of a groundswell, or in terms of on on the ground reality, you and I are in any situation where we have an aspiration toward intimacy. It's already complex. It's already nerve wracking. The idea of me being attracted to you and asking you, would you like to have a cup of coffee, could be the most incredibly difficult thing in the world for me to do. And that's me as a so-called normal person. I have a mother who represses me, not through any act of malice, through her protective notion of love. And suddenly she finds out that I'm attracted to you. Every precedent that has been put in place makes her believe, and her doctors validated, that me becoming intimately involved with you, even in terms of aspiration, is potentially damaging to both of us. So what is normal and gorgeous and beautiful and innate becomes dangerous. Now, suddenly you're in a situation where you go, okay, on a simple level, my right to intimacy, my aspiration toward you, are turned into something very ugly. Now, you take that further, you take that into the, the realm of uh, abnormality, you take that into the realm of anybody who has any disagreement or any notion other than the standard conventional notion about engagement. And suddenly we have a government who oppresses us. We have a government who oppresses all those aspirations. We have organizations who, are, who set about to destroy 
other organizations who are trying to change those things. We see it every day played out in the media. We see it every day played out in politics. We see it every day where the very things that uh, are brought about through social change are hammered or destroyed or have funding withdrawn or whatever. So I think in reality, we claim to be in these campaigns, we claim to be celebrating something or embracing something. But in actuality, if you look at our government policies, look at our financial policies, look at our social orders, we are going 10, 20, 30, 40 years back in our engagement. We are criminalizing people for aspiration beyond the conventional. We are destroying people's aspirations. We are criminalizing the working class. Simple thing about the, the, the aspiration toward a home. It used to be a working class birthright that if you worked hard in school, graduated, got a skill, worked hard, got a house, raised a family, that you could retire and be a decent person with a decent family and a decent lineage. All of that is gone now. So we are the so-called normal people and that's been done to us. What the hell do we think has been done to the so-called abnormal people? So no, I, I believe in actuality the damage that's being done right now on a daily basis in an orchestrated way is worse than it's ever been. Because at least in the 70s, they didn't really know what they were doing. It was just, it was just ugly, state-ordained protection of pedophiles, of corrupt individuals. Now it's actually across the board. Now it's the, the, all the fundamental things we believe in, state, church, government, banks, everything that is supposed to be there for our benefit have all corrosively entered our lives and destroyed them. So no, I, I, I think the media campaigns are a fallacy. I think the actuality and the reality demonstrate something much, much more damaging. Do you think as a, um, as a society we'd be becoming just so desensitized to everything then? I think we're terrified. I don't think it's even desensitization. I think we're terrified. I think there's a whole series of very, very decent people who have been removed from engagement. Like again, look at our national media broadcaster. Look at the people that, that, that our national media broadcaster celebrates. Look at the mediocrity that is protected. Look at the voices that are silenced. Look at our business model. Look at the things that we celebrate. Look at our banks. Look at our institutions. Look at our mental institutions. Look at our hospitals. Look at anything across the board that is about the protection of the vulnerable. And all of those institutions have been destroyed. Look at our arts. We've got a minister for arts who has made it very clear he could give less a damn about the arts on every level. We've got a film board, which, frankly, we are incredibly lucky to have. And there's a lot of people who criticize the film board, but we're amazingly lucky to have it. But every year its funding is getting pulled more and more. We're in a situation where the arts is treated as something that is either a joke or to be treated with suspicion. We've got administrative staff who are protected on every level. We've got artists who are starving, and we've got administrative staff who have no problem paying their mortgages. Who have no, who, they're not the, the ones leaving any venues early. They're the last ones at the bar because the administrative staff are protected and the actual artists have nothing. That same administrative notion in hospitals. You've got people dying on hospital trolleys as administrative staff are walking around doing nothing and getting paid a healthy annual salary for it. We've got the same thing with the banks. We've got a bank... The whole banking system that was bailed out to an amount that even defies comprehension. And now those same banks are attacking people, attacking Irish citizens in their homes and pulling their homes off them. This defies comprehension. That's happening to us on a daily basis. We've got children who are going to schools and their education has been robbed on every level. I think for, a, for an amazing nation of people with some of the most magnificent human beings you could ever meet on the planet, we are not anesthetized, we are terrified. And we are in such a state of terror that we are afraid to breathe. Um, 
just going back to what you said about the film board and this goes uh, to what you're saying with or to uh, the film uh, St. Patrick's Day when you did Charlie Casanova it was for a very very small budget roughly around a thousand euro mm. um, I would assume then that when St. Patrick's Day came out it was easier for you to get funding or was, or was it a struggle again well the thing about the film board is that you know it's funny because it's back to that thing where you go people presume because I had made Charlie Casanova for so little that I was somehow anti-film board I wasn't ever the film would have been extraordinarily kind to me at times like genuinely and also i don't presume that the, i'm entitled to anything from the film board i don't look at the film board and go excuse me i'm this person i demand this from you i never i've never seen it as that way they're you well, know as you said they apparently give you, you have no right to say that apparently no but i've also been turned down multiple times as well my point is that one act of generosity to me is enough to determine it as generous i've been turned down multiple times just like anybody else but just to clarify it's not it's not that i'm i've been protected by the board it's that you go Maybe it's because I'm accustomed to the American model, but in America, no one's going to give you jack shit. He's going to get dodgy credit cards and max them out. You're going to steal, you're going to borrow, you're going to do everything to try and make your movie. I always came from that notion that you have no right to insist that somebody help you make your movie. Now, in terms of the film board this time, we were very close to not getting a green light. Nobody stepped up and suddenly went, okay, whatever you want next will be yours. We had to fight tooth and nail for it. Tim Palmer, our producer, a brilliant producer, Rory Gilmartin and the film board, they decided to protect this film. But they could only protect it to a certain degree. And at no stage whatsoever did anybody say, okay, you can do whatever you want. Everything had to be qualified. Everything had to be fought for. Everything had to be qualified. And that's kind of right. So when I talk about the board, the film board being something remarkable, it's remarkable that it exists. It's remarkable that it gives money to anybody. Are there certain people who seem to be getting more money than other people? Yes. Maybe it's because they're making movies. Maybe it's a vicious circle or maybe it's unfair. Maybe it's an elite circle. But the very fact that there was an organization out there that would give somebody 12,000 euros to write a screenplay and that that's available to you without any history, which is what happened to me, without any history, without anybody in your corner, without anybody pulling political stunts for you is remarkable. The very fact that something like Patrick's Day can get made against all commercial odds. Patrick's Day is going to be a very difficult sell. We've had a remarkable response to the film, but it's going to be a very, very difficult sell. More, had, uh, more difficult than Charlie Casanova? Well, I think the difference with Charlie Casanova is that even in the space of a number of years, the model has changed so dramatically. With Charlie Casanova, you're selling, you're selling a, a, a kind of, again, a political punk rock, but with Patrick's Day, you're selling a drama, and television has taken over drama so brilliantly. It's, it's, there's... Television has become the new cinema. Television is doing on television what cinema did in the 70s in cinema. But if we look at a movie like this, it's a hard sell, but they fought for it because they believed it was a worthy sell. And they took a big risk. They took a, a genuine gamble. Now, the film, we've had phenomenal responses to the film, and we've had people stand up and give the most incredibly poignant declarations in a theater to a bunch of strangers. We've had, again, we've had... NAMI, which is the National Advocacy Group in America. We've had the most extraordinary response from them. We've had people talk about this coming from an authenticity that is unprecedented. We've all all those things, and yet it still might be very, very difficult to sell this film. That's not the film board's fault. It's not our fault. It's the reality of the market out there. But I will say, and again, just to clarify, in terms of the board, we are blessed beyond belief that it exists at all. And there are a whole bunch of people out there who would pull it in a heartbeat if they didn't think it was making some money for the country. And that's the only reason it exists. It's not there on some governmental level because of aesthetics. It's there because it's proven that it brings money in. 
from what you said there, um, your films seem to be celebrated practically everywhere outside of Ireland. <laughs> well, again, it's it's I've only I've only made two films, but I think the difference is that in America, for example, or the notion of of America, because it is a notion, it is a myth as well, but the underdog is still something to be celebrated. There's a mythology of the underdog, and that's, that mythology is still embraced, even if it's later quashed or turned into a whore through money. But in our country, the underdog is to be treated with suspicion. The underdog is the rebel, the underdog is the terrorist, the underdog is the person who is messing with the system. And we don't come from a culture of celebrating rebellion. We used to. But that changed so fundamentally. Now rebels are morons or idiots or jokes or clowns or whatever way the media dresses them up to be, all being fed information by the government or by whatever forces are in play. And by those forces, I mean, you know, the police or whatever. So we have politicians now who are turned into jokes. We have Mick Wallace who was turned into a joke. And you watch this man, this man who had courage beyond measure. Oh, yeah, he had money. Of course he had money. And he used that money in whatever way he did. But he also had courage. He put up banners talking about us having the blood of Iraqi children on our hands. And you look at this man and he's turned into a joke. You've Claire Daly who's turned into a joke, handcuffed and arrested and put on the front of the newspaper, even though they knew that they had no case. Then we have someone like Alan Shatter who eventually resigns. And you look at this scenario and you go, he was protected across the board. They were attacked across the board. We don't even know the beginning of what happened. These whistleblowers are talking about a whole series of things that are going to be exposed. And yet still we will go back, go back to that original system where Shadow will be forgotten, Kenny will be protected, and the police force will continue to slip or feed information to whomever they want, depending on whatever their agenda is. Um, I would love to go in and talk about the police force a bit more. Unfortunately, my father is actually a retired sergeant. But he has turned around and said to me um, that uh, it's not what it used to be. And that's the only real way I can put it to, to, to most people is that when he says, oh, does he miss being out of the force? He says, not really, because it's not what he used to be. When he signed up, he was, it was the, the early 70s, and he just goes, it's just changed. But the politics in the guards themselves and what happens, you, just, you actually just realise this is a television show. This is, this is a book. This is two books. This is just unbelievable what you're telling me. And this is just one station. It's happening around us here, and they're just trying to keep alive. Like any power structure, it's the people at top who are exploiting the people at the bottom and getting away with everything. So I'm not saying all cops are bastards, not at all. But I am saying that the protection of those at the top is endemic and is going to continue. But this is what I'm talking about, is that it, the simple idea that... Like we had a conversation recently. Uh, I was working on a project with a couple of producers, and the contract gave us the right to change the cast. And I said, just because the contract gives us the right to fuck somebody doesn't mean we should. And this notion that because you have the power or because somebody has facilitated you to have the power to fuck somebody, why do you have to take it? Why do you have to choke the living shit out of the other person to elevate yourself when in fact both of you could have risen together? And that's a mentality that disturbs the hell out of me. And that's a mentality that permeates across the board in this culture. It's not just a case of we want, the, we, we want people to be obedient. It's that we want them on their knees. Like this whole thing, and again, I don't want to get into too political, but the idea that somebody can fail in government so profoundly as Brian Cowan and then be appointed to the board of directors of Topaz, who are part of Shell. Now, Shell was granted incredible powers to exploit the rights of people on their own land. 
a foreign company was allowed to come in and destroy the rights of Irish citizens. Dennis O'Brien buys Topaz. He appoints Brian Cowan, the failure that is Brian Cowan to the board of directors. Turns out that one of Dennis O'Brien's subsidiary companies has been granted the contract to put the water meters all over the country. These are multi, multi-million dollar contracts that have been put in play. So is it only a matter of time before Enda Kenny is appointed to the board of directors of the water company? This is how absurd it is. This is how farcical it is. And it's happening in front of us. On our watch right here, right now, it's happening. And every day what they look at, it, they go, these people are so incapable of doing anything. We can literally laugh in their face and they will beg us not to hurt them too much. Again, they say the most effective form of abuse is when the abuser doesn't have to be around anymore and the abused continues to abuse themselves. That's who we've become. You recently back from a trip to Portugal. A writing trip, from what I've been told. Is this an attempt to change the tone? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about bikinis in Portugal. Go ahead. Um, the way you write, um, do you have to get into the right frame of mind or does it just come naturally? Uh, I was blocked for actually for a while. Um, I do a lot of writing on dictaphone and that kind of stuff so that you don't have to be limited to a blank page or to a computer so that you can be walking around also at three o'clock in the morning so you can wake up and record something. But uh, again, the great Tim Palmer, the remarkable producer that he is, uh, decided to try and help. And what we did was we went to Portugal on a very, very cheap holiday to work, to get up every morning and start working. And uh, so it's bizarrely, it's resulted in being unblocked. Great. I don't know for how long, but it's resulted in being on block. So, yeah, we're working on the next film, and it's, it's called Oliver Twisted. It's kind of 10 to 6. Yeah, we get up in the morning, get up early. Uh, we watched Joseph Campbell, The Power of Myth. Do you know Joseph Campbell, The Power of Myth? No. For really. any of your listeners, you should try and get your hands on it. It's astonishing. It's six one-hour interviews with one of the greatest minds of all time. And uh, we watched that in the morning. Uh, have a bit of breakfast, watch that, then go for a long walk in the beach and just discuss, you know, like the fundamental requirements of structure, character, so on and so forth. Have a bit of lunch and then continue to do so until the evening and then have a bit of food. So it was it was very relaxed, but very uh, invested in what we were doing. And it's, again, an extraordinarily privileged way of writing, an extraordinarily privileged way of engaging because the actuality is at home in your world, you're getting attacked and your home has been taken and stuff. So it's a... Uh, yeah, it's the next script. It's called Oliver Twisted. It's going to be the next movie, and we're fighting hard for it. Again, we've another quote uh, from yourself. Uh, books were my drugs. Mm. What books? Uh, well, I, see, I, didn't, I had an incomplete education, to phrase it politely. And uh, I had that chip-on-the-shoulder notion that because I never finished primary school and all that kind of stuff that uh, I somehow had missed out on something. And I had this notion that college was incredible, that you know, college was full of really smart people having really smart conversations in between bouts of orgiastic sex and drugs. <laughs> and uh, I was, again, I was, I was very hungry and all those kind of things, but I bought, this sounds so fucking pretentious, but it's the truth, I bought um, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. And I was, at the time, I was living in a tiny little one-room uh, one place. And my landlady was this weird, strange, crazy, salivating freak. <laughs> and I remember reading Crime and Punishment. And you had the central character, Raskolnikov, who decides that if he can kill this old woman and steal her money, he can use that money to do some good. And 
the moral complexity of that aspiration. I remember reading this book on, I don't know anything about Dostoevsky, but how the hell did he get into my life? How did he know me so inside out all those years ago? And it affected me on a profound level, a completely profound level. And curiously enough, one of the strange things is that the perversion of that and the reverse of that is Charlie Casanova. It came from that. But then I, I got, again, I remember getting the complete works of Oscar Wilde, 299. And you, again, you would have to forego some food for it, you know? But then just reading it and reading it voraciously and going, feeling like you had experienced something that was the world's least kept secret and yet you were too stupid to recognize it until it hits you in the face. And then a time later, talking to different people when eventually you learned to be able to engage and talking to students who had done literature. And, you know, you had read Bukowski, you'd read Baudley, you'd read everyone that you could get your hands on. You couldn't stop. And then you're sitting there and these people have master's degree in English literature and you can't believe how excited you are at the prospect of sitting down discussing literature with them. And then there's some of the dumbest fucks you've ever met in your life. They're illiterate. They don't give a damn about the material. And you're going, what? And then suddenly you realize, okay, you realize how blessed you were that you came at it from the back door, that you came at it as a, as a result of discovery as opposed to imposition or academic restriction. And suddenly you, you actually feel sorry for the very people that you once aspired toward being because they had the love for it kicked out of them and your love for it has remained intact. Yeah, I, I suppose when you, when you say it like that, I mean, you came back at it from like a back door there was raw, pure passion there from when you were reading it and you loved it and enjoyed it. Mm. That from when people go to college, it might be that thing of uh, when you're asked to do something or study something, it's not as enjoyable. Whereas mm. if you just bought the book, picked it up, read it, you'd enjoy it so much more than if someone said, you know, you have to go study that. And say, mm. oh, no. But there's also that profound loneliness as well. You know, you're coming from a position of such profound loneliness that you don't know what to do. You don't, You literally... Your two choices are you either commit suicide just to stop the pain or you pick up a book because you hope that for a while that'll be a band-aid and it turns out that the book is your drug. So it really helps you? It saved my fucking life. Of course, yeah. So again, I think it's funny because this is back to the idea of Charlie Casanova. We, when we made that movie, we said this is for people living in bedsits. I remember, and I got a tiny little bit of money. I used to go, there was a store up around the corner that did five videos for a night for le next to nothing if you had them back. It was a 24-hour video store in North Mines if you had them back before 8 o'clock the next morning. So I'd watch five movies back to back. And I think part of the extraordinary excitement is realizing that the things that you think are your secrets and yours alone, the things that you think are your fears and yours alone, the things that you think isolate you from the rest of humankind that nobody knows about, suddenly you're given voice and you realize you're not fucking alone. You don't have to be the only one to fear this cancer in your stomach that feels like wet concrete every time you walk out the door, that there are other people out there feeling it. And suddenly, just the removal of realizing that it's not just you gives you hope like you couldn't believe. And you don't even identify it as hope at the time, but it suddenly allows you to go, fuck, there are people out there who feel something similar. There are people out there who... I might someday connect with. You have a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> well, one that we know of. You, you, you may have many more. Um, well, well prepared. <laughs> Can you explain it? Uh, the tattoo says the art is in the completion begin. And uh, pretentious as it sounds, I got to put on my body before I met Charlie Casanova. I, I needed something. 
I needed a wake-up call and I needed it as a constant reminder. So it's on my arm and it's just that notion where you go, okay, you're terrified to make this film. You're terrified to do these things. But it's not about what you feel. It's about how you complete it because only then will the next part of the journey begin. I remember I wrote my first screenplay and had no idea what was going to happen next. And I had done some, I'd done a bullshit advertisement for a beer, some kind of beer or something. And uh, they paid 300 pounds at the time, which to me was a fuck load of money at the time. And there was a thing called a star writer. And a star writer was a word processor with a built-in printer. It was a huge clunky piece of shit, but Christ, I loved it. I'd never experienced anything like it. And again, back to Ken Harmon. I mentioned Ken Harmon earlier, the great writer. Ken Harmon bought one at the same time as me. We were living in these bedsits removed from the world on every level. And uh, we bought these things together. And that changed, literally, you're talking about changing your life, that changed your life because I knew that if I, if I wrote something on that, something would change. And I wrote it and I remember typing the end eventually after the longest time, and I mean years. And I typed the end and I walked out onto the street and again, nobody gave a damn. But I knew that something, some seismic shift had taken place and I had no idea why or how or how it was going to manifest. And a short time later, I was flown first class to Los Angeles to write a screenplay for Daryl Hannah. So it, it's one of those things where you go, a, a, a single act of completion can have profound impact without you ever being aware of how it's going to happen. So I got that tattoo as an attempt to go, you've got to make your movie. You're coming up to 40. You will never make a film unless you make one now. You will forever be somebody who's a hack whore for other people. I wrote a whole bunch of really awful soap opera and all that kind of stuff as well. But you will forever be somebody else's bitch. Or you're going to take a risk and make a movie that you know people are going to fucking hate. But you're going to make it for all the right reasons. So the tattoo was a constant reminder of that. The art is in the completion begin. And bizarrely, <laughs> there's three people in America who've got the tattoo on their bodies now and they've sent me pictures of it. And that's where you go, now, that's fucking strange. <laughs> but, but again, this is back to the idea that it suddenly takes on a life of its own. Um, the, uh, the film industry itself, mm. um, is there any changes you'd like to see in it? Uh, it's funny because, you know, there's a whole generation of people out there who don't pay for cinema. And they don't pay for cinema, not because they're malicious, not because they're greedy, but because they have been brought up the way we were brought up listening to radio. Like, this is a podcast you're doing now. You're not going to charge for this podcast. That's a magnanimous gesture. You're putting your time and your effort and everything here for this right now. You're doing that because you believe that there is something bigger than us and more worthy than us out there. These kids watch movies. They love movies. They watch everything. My kid, I got, a, I got a 19-year-old son who's seen every movie made in the last 15 years. You think the prick has paid for one of them? He hasn't. And it's because he is part of a generation who don't believe that paying for things in this context is an issue. They just want to absorb everything. So the thing that the change I'd like to see, it's back to that simple idea of access. Who accesses what and why? You look at the movie list at the moment. I wanted to go to the movies the other day. And I went through the long list of movies that were on. And every single one of them made me want to puke into my mouth. Every one of them was a $120 million CGI comic book fantasy. And you go, and again, I'm no disrespect to that. There are people who love that and I got no problem with it. But where the hell are the other movies? 
And we need to protect, as audiences, we need to protect movies. Like we're sitting here recording this in the Sugar Club. This place should be screening movies every morning. We, we need to take the power back in terms of screening the movies we want to see. Because we can't expect big companies to do it because they're driven by money. They're all owned by Sony or McDonald's or Coca-Cola now anyway. So if we want to protect movies as an aesthetic, important, relevant necessity in our lives, we've got to find a way of projecting those movies. And if we charge 50 cents in or a euro in just to cover or whatever, we need to protect the future of cinema in terms of content by protecting that content in terms of screening it. That's a change I'd love to see. Um, I think it would be an understatement to say that you're uh, very vocal on social media. <laughs> I think uh, in particular... Uh, well, I'll be honest with you. I think there's probably not a week that goes by when I see something on your Facebook feed that I go, oh, Jesus, he, fucking, he, he went off on one there, you know? But uh, to be fair, after talking to you, and uh, it, it is uh, it's something that's going to be... You're a lot more soft-spoken than I actually imagined because the way things come out on, uh, on so social media, especially, I suppose, the use of caps lock things can come across as quite uh, quite verbal and stuff like that but um, I've never used caps lock in my no, life no you haven't you haven't used caps lock um, but you have been quite um, vocal about uh, social and political issues even in this podcast and stuff like that um, have you ever thought about you know running for uh, an election or running for politics or anything like that I mean you talk about change and there's you know there's stuff that needs to be done or stuff that you want to open people's eyes to it's not even that I want to open people's eyes. I want to open my own eyes. I'm a coward. Like, I'm a complete coward here. This is not some heroism or not some attempt to put your dick on the table and go, look at me and my insight into politics. I'm terrified of my own cowardice. I'm terrified of what I've become. I'm terrified that my children will look back at me in time to come and go, my old man was a cowardly piece of shit. My old man did nothing. That my grandkids will look back and do the same. I'm terrified that some of the best people I've ever met, some of the best people I've ever known, are so far removed from politics on every level they behave as if it doesn't exist because they're so busy trying to protect their own tiny little world. I'm terrified that art has no meaning. I'm terrified that work has no meaning. I'm terrified that all the things that used to have substance and used to be the reason for existence have been eradicated. I've been approached by a few different people to get involved in politics, but why? What, who is going to sit down at the table with me? Because I'd reach across and drag them across the fucking table. These, guys, these people are lying scum. The ones who aren't are so disenfranchised anyway in the political forum that it really just makes little difference. And the people who can make a genuine difference are dangerous. We see them as dangerous. Jerry Adams has just been brought in by the PSNI for the G. McConville murder. Do you think the timing of that was coincidence? Do you think it was an accident? Now, you mentioned Jerry Adams and suddenly you're an extremist. Suddenly you're a moron. Suddenly, oh my God, he's not a Sinn Féin supporter, is he? And suddenly people switch off, automatically switch off because we've all taken sides. Now, I don't know what Jerry Adams' engagement in his past was, but I do know that his engagement in his present and his future seems to be one of genuine attempt at social change, social reordering, where the power is spread more equally. Now, the independents who aspire toward the same thing, the socialists who aspire toward the same thing, why are they all presented as freaks? Why do we have someone like Ming stand up in court and we ridicule him for his name, and we ridicule him for the fact that he smoked grass, and we ridicule him for the fact that he just exposed stuff that we can't even begin to imagine. And we have the leader of the country laughing in his face. Why do we allow the worst of us to control the best of us? And I don't understand right now how I can engage in a political process and 
change that. So in terms of Facebook or social media, I put stuff up occasionally. You wouldn't believe the stuff I don't put up. The real fucking stuff. Part of it is to go, okay, are we alive? And the other thing that's interesting with something like Facebook is that you put up some banality, some irrelevance, and you get a whole bunch of likes and a whole bunch of emails and a whole bunch of everything. You put up something that's semi-sexual and you get a whole bunch of solicitations. You put up something that's political and everyone keeps their fucking mouth shut. Nobody wants to talk about it, except the usual few. And what's interesting about something like social media is that it does supposedly give a reflection or an indication of our reality. And our reality is that we are being destroyed on a daily basis. All of your rights are being eroded. All of your children's rights are being eroded in advance. And we are doing nothing about it. And even if the government does change, unless we have a seismic readjustment of all policy, nothing is going to change. We are owned lock, stock and barrel. This country is owned lock, stock and barrel. Your future is owned lock, stock and barrel. And the only way that's going to change is sadly, and this is where you suddenly find yourself saying stuff where you go, okay, now you're in trouble. But it feels like a bomb on a suitcase kind of politics. It feels like the kind of politics where you go, this is a night of the long knives. The only thing that's going to make any difference is a whole bunch of people being brought out on a public stage and having something horrific done to them. And suddenly you're going, am I actually entertaining these thoughts? Am I thinking the kind of thoughts that preceded 1916? And suddenly you're going, okay, I've got I to rationalize this. I've got to look at the reality of this. Then you go, okay, do we disappear a few of them? And you're going, are you actually are you seriously thinking that? And then you look through all the revolutions and you go, it's the intellectuals who were behind the revolutions. It was the artists who were behind the revolutions. It was the working man who was behind the revolutions. And we're not doing any of that. Then you're thinking, okay, can we appear to disappear a bunch of people? Can we take 12 heads of our country and appear to disappear them? Can that become the national international headline screamed across the world? Can we vanish them overnight? And suddenly you're going, am I entertaining this thought? And then you realize, okay, are we at that level of extremity? And frankly, we are. Surely not just Ireland, though, from what you're talking about. I mean, that's across the world. Well, I'm only talking about Ireland because I think Ireland has been used as a study group. I think Ireland has been used like a bunch of lab rats. I think democracy is a con. Democracy is a notion and as a philosophy is something beautiful. But the most effective thing fascism ever did was dress itself in the sheep's clothing of democracy. Are you a spiritual person? It's interesting you ask that because I'm, you're talking about tattoos. I'm getting a second tattoo. Well, a third one. The other one is I got in, in Los Angeles. Um, and it says Namaste. You know Namaste? And Namaste is part of this script, believe it or not, Oliver Twisted. But it's a major part of it. Namaste means that I recognize the divine in you in a non-judgmental way, effectively. It's more eloquently phrased than that, but that's a simple idea. I am trying to engage in the practice of non-judgment or the practice of because if you continue this way you're going to have a heart attack you're going to have a nervous breakdown you're going to have a mental breakdown we all do things to each other every day that defies comprehension the people who do the worst things to each other are the people who are supposed to love each other I can't think of any world or any war that is more vicious than a domestic private world and yet the only way we're going to change it is through non-judgment and everything I've said about the, the political system and everything, you wonder, if you practice non-judgment, do you vanish? 
do you become like Gandhi and cause a revolution or do you vanish? And I think that these people look at non-judgment or look at people with a spiritual aspiration and see us as morons. So, yes, I would have almost a naive, romantic yearning for something spiritual, but I would also be aware that these scum are exploiting the shit out of it. You used the term, uh, humans go bigger than us. Um, do you think at any level that the corruption that you see occurs when people lose sight of the sense that there is something bigger than us? And the kind of curiosity that drives out retain? Well, it's interesting because, you know, we're all... Thankfully, we're not as reluctant as we used to be, but we're reluctant to use the word art. We're reluctant to call ourselves artists because, you know, only nonsense and pretentious pricks are artists, or so we've been led to believe. But we already talked earlier about how art saves your fucking life. Dostoevsky saved mine. And every day something happens that makes you believe in the better part of us. And I wouldn't be making movies like Charlie Casanova or Patrick's Day unless I believed in the better part of us. Do I think fundamental political change occurs as a result of the better part of us? No, I don't. I believe that they exploit the better part of us, that they know the narrative in advance, and that the best part of us is something they see as a weakness. If collectively we get together to use the better part of us, can we change something? I don't know. I don't know how that's possible. I don't know how it's possible to take the greatness that is inherent in everybody, the decency that's inherent in so many people, and turn that into a political force. I'd love to know, but I haven't a clue. Do I think art is powerful beyond measure? Yes. Do I think innate decency is far more common than innate greed? Absolutely. But I also know that we are so terrified that we can't tell one from the other anymore. And that we are, we are, we've become so paranoid through imposed suspicion that everybody is the enemy. There's no such thing as community. There's no such thing as engagement. There's no such thing as taking a risk on a stranger because everybody, we've been told that everyone is out for their agenda. Everyone is out for their own thing. I'd love to see, I'd love to see a seismic shift in our culture. I'd love to see a, a genuine <sighs> embracing of something remarkable. But how is it going to manifest? You, um, you did mention that, uh, you know, books saved your life, uh, saved your life even. Um, who or what do you think has been your biggest influence? Jesus. Or have there been a number of things? There's loads of stuff that influences you, but, uh, Jesus. I suppose it's mates, like really good mates. Like, um, I got some very, very good friends who any time we're together, something remarkable seems to f feel like it's possible. So, you know, there are actors like Declan Conlon or writers like Marco Rowe or we mentioned Ken Harmon and Jimmy Fade as Richie Smith. There's a whole bunch of people. Tim Palmer, the producer. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who seem to be brave beyond measure. And they seem to be able to carry that bravery with such swagger. It fucking amazes me because I'm terrified all the time. But those people, you know, those people amaze me. 
But again, we just, you know, there's Mo Dumford who we just finished the film with. There's Catherine Walker, the great Catherine Walker. There's Kerry Fox, there's Philip Jackson. These are all people who I've worked with recently who just being in their very company, just being within, being in their shadow almost, enjoying being in their shadow, just being witness to what they do with their lives and with their art in particular, blows me away all the time and influences me all the time. And again, it's back to that genuine humility where you go, fuck, I can't believe I'm lucky enough to be in the company of these people much less be directing them in something that I wrote. Why film? I mean, what, why, why do you do what you do? Uh, it's funny because theatre, I think, is different. Theatre is an empty room with the lights turned down that becomes everything that the church was supposed to be about. Transformation, immediate transformation. Uh, infectious collective viscerality that is contagious and where when you leave that space you are altered in the same way as you were altered in a church film to me is back to the idea of a bedsit somebody sitting alone on a bedsit film you put it on you press play there's no one else around and instead of standing on a small stool and putting a rope around the light you actually 90 minutes later walk out of the room and go fuck I've just seen something that I didn't think existed. Also, I think film is an amalgamation of all the arts. You know, we had this conversation before, but what would Van Gogh have done with film? What would Mozart have done with film? What would Dostoevsky have done with film? And then there's that other thing, you know, I remember seeing film. I remember my old man told me to sit down and watch 12 Angry Men. I remember sitting there watching 12 Angry Men. And I was only a kid. I remember going, what's my young man doing telling me to sit down and watch anything? Then I went, oh, it's black and white, and he nearly <laughs> smacked me. And I watched it, and I remember watching it at the time, and this is one of those things where you go, this is either the arrogance of youth or the stupidity of youth, or perhaps you go, okay, I've clicked into something different. But I remember watching, I vividly remember watching 12 Angry Men as a young child and going, what if Henry Fonda was the devil? What if this guy is corrupting this court? And this Mexican kid actually killed this man. And this guy is going to take the whole judicial system and turn it on its head and make a whole bunch of honest people into deeply corrupted people who let off one of his disciples. Now, there's something disturbing about that, that a young kid is watching something as remarkable as Sidney Lumet's 12 Angry Men and turning it into a story about the fucking devil. But quite a, uh, quite a twist at the end, all right? <laughs> but just that simple notion, because that's, that's dramatic irony. That's, okay, audience placing. Who knows what, where, and when? And to suddenly be in a position where you go, the kind of movies that I love are not the kind of movies everybody loves, and that's okay. But the kind of movies that I want to make are those kind of movies where you're not quite sure... what's happening, where and when, but you hope that you're affected by it. And with Patrick's Day, like Patrick's Day is a very simple story about a young guy with mental health issues who falls for a suicidal flight attendant, an older woman. And his mother, back to what we talked about earlier, his mother, his obsessive mother, believes that it's damaging for him. So she tries to protect him by enlisting a cop to separate them. And this kid who has no right to intimacy and apparently no knowledge of love ends up being the most courageous of all these people. That simple idea, that simple notion, that idea of taking a piece of film that for an hour and 45 minutes or whatever makes you feel like you want to go out and ask that girl for that cup of coffee or ask that bloke, does he want to go to the movies or approach that stranger who you've been seeing for 
10 years in the street and blushed every time you saw and looked down. Just that simple notion of can you make a piece of cinema that makes somebody reach out and the consequence of that reaching out means that they might be less lonely. If you had to choose one between writing, acting and directing, I'm assuming it's probably just going to go down between writing and directing. Well, I think that it's funny because writing is a fucking nightmare. I hate writing. Jesus Christ, you want to be mentally retarded to even conceive of being a writer. <laughs> I don't find writing easy. Like, there are great... I mentioned Mark Rowe earlier. Mark Rowe is, is the great writer of his generation. The guy's a genius. And a magnificent human being. But when he sits down to write, he engages with the muse in a way that's just like making love. When I sit down with the muse, she has the fucking door locked, and I'm begging her to let me in. So it's a different thing. I think with directing, you're facilitating something. I love the idea of directing to the point where somehow the person ends up being even better than they thought they were. They have transcended their own limitations. They've transcended their own fears, their own doubts, and they've caught on camera in that instant something that has transformed all of you just for that brief time. That excites the hell out of me because once it's caught on camera, you go through a whole post-production process and there's still somehow something that exists and remains. And then it goes on to a cinema screen and then everybody has different responses to it. And then it goes on to DVD or download or whatever the hell the differences are going to be now. But somebody, back to that simple idea, somebody somewhere sitting alone in the bedsit might watch that film and connect. And you're never going to know about it. You've never been there to witness it, but it might connect in a way that you connected when you were living in a bedsit 20 plus years ago. That's exciting. Final question, Terry. To, uh, I suppose, to bring it up uh, or to finish on a, uh, on a more positive note. What is your um, your proudest moment? Jesus. It's like fucking this is your life. <sighs> See, this is where you got to say the birth of my children and so on and so forth. But it's three of them. So they're all going to go, which fucking one? <laughs> uh, my proudest moment. My proudest moment. Good God. I don't have one. What about um, your biggest mistake then? Oh, fuck me. <laughs> have you got six hours? <laughs> well, let's, actually, you know what? Let's go back to um, proudest moment for a second. Proudest moment in your professional career. I'm not being evasive, but I just, I don't have one. Okay. It's not about pride. I'm not suggesting that, you, that, you're, that you're suggesting it is. No. But, um, proudest fucking moment. Oh, you talk about when you, uh, when you came out of your, uh, your bed set after writing uh, your first screenplay and you said there was a seismic shift and, you know, you couldn't, nobody else knew about it, but you could tell that there was something, something was after happening. I mean, you must have felt pretty proud after that. It's not even pr pride because that's fear. I, I, we, we went to the European Film Festival in Paris and Emmett Scanlon who played Charlie Casanova mm -hmm. he uh, you know a lot of people perceive him as a prick or as an arrogant wanker or whatever when in fact he's a beautiful man who's one of the hardest workers you'd ever meet but he came over to Paris and he had to get a flight back to uh, England 
he was doing um, that TV show at the time. But he'd, he'd won the award for best actor in Paris. And I had to accept the award for him. And I remember thinking, nobody in this room knows who he is. No one in this room gives a fuck. No one in this room knows who I am and nobody gives a fuck. But for this man right here, right now, because the courage he showed in that role and the, the aggressive... Because he was as damned as much as I was. But the aggressive attacks on him. And here we are in Paris, the home of so much cinema I adore. And this guy is at to have been awarded Best Actor. I remember feeling huge pride for him. Genuinely massive pride for him. And thinking at the time, you know what, you can all go fuck yourselves. Scanners at the win the best actor. It's a bit of pride on that. But it's kind of a vicarious pride, if that makes sense. Like, I've won awards myself. You know, best director, best film, all that kind of stuff. But they didn't, they didn't generate pride. Because to be proud of something... And again, I, I hate to sound like I'm fucking on This Is Your Life, but sometimes I see what my kids do and it, it generates extraordinary pride. I see them in a, engage in a simple act of kindness that nobody's witnessed except me from the wings. And I go, that's fucking... That's really, really beautiful that in those circumstances with no witnesses, they chose to do something decent for no reason other than just to do something decent. Do you have any future ambitions? Apart yeah. from that you're uh, currently writing at the moment, is there anything else that you aim for? Uh, yeah, millions of things. I'd love to. I'd love to be part of a community that makes remarkable work hard and fast. I'd love to be the kind of stuff that John Cassavetes is. Not he didn't do it as hard and fast as he should have, but John Cassavetes or those people who make remarkable work to make remarkable work. Like even the simple thing here, you know, we don't know each other, but to give up a few hours of your day for a podcast that we don't know who's going to listen to it. I, th I still find that after all these years, I still find that incredibly exciting. It's, I hate to keep on referring to the bed set mentality, but I find it incredibly exciting that a bunch of people want to do something just to do something. And I'd, I'd, I'd love to... I'd love to, I don't know, not build a community because I don't feel the need to lead it, but I'd love to be part of a community that happened really, really hard and fast where a bunch of writers, actors, directors, producers, crew got together and went, we got six weeks for delivery. And the day after those six weeks, they went into the next project, just moving fast, moving fast. I think the factory tried it, but I'm not sure if it worked. But just that simple idea where a whole, whole community of people, where all of their vested interests are engaged with, where sound and picture and design and all those things are engaged with as, as equal arts that are as equally important. Not where we'll fix it in post or fix it in ADR or do it in CGI. Or and I think that empowerment, I think that's how we can move cinema forward. And I'd love to be a part of that. I don't know if it's possible. But the very fact that the three of you are doing this right here, right now, for no cash and no vested interest other than to try and explore Irish cinema for whatever long-term goal, I think that's fantastic. And that's, that's something that we've forgotten. That's something we've lost sight of. The idea of just discussing aesthetics and making aesthetics because what a privileged bunch of people we are to be able to even do so. We're very privileged to have you here for the interview. 
you know thank you very much and for coming in for us bet you say that to all the boys <laughs> <laughs> I know, but in you know, in all seriousness, I mean, as you said, I mean, we 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 do this just for our enjoyment. We do it because we want to do it. I mean, you wouldn't believe the amount of people that would just be like, "Oh no, it's okay." Mm-hmm. So when yourself or other people that we have coming in, it does mean a lot to us that you take your time, you know, to come in and actually do the entry with us. It's it's great. So thank you very much. But even that notion that ah oh, no, it's okay. I don't understand that. I don't understand why it's okay to appear on Ryan Tuberty's show. Because you're promoting your project, as opposed to sitting down and having a genuine conversation with genuine people, but just not under the banner of RTE. Why have we lost the desire to engage with that conversation? And why have we sold out so horribly to the corporate notion of conversation? It doesn't make any sense. Whereas, uh, you look at someone like Jim Sheridan. I've heard conversations with Jim Sheridan where you just go, this guy is born to make movies, born to make stories, born to engage with human beings on every level. And then you see so many of our other filmmakers or our theatre makers and they are so removed from engagement, they insist on a hierarchy of approach that there's no humanity in them and how in Christ's name can they presume to engage with an audience in relation to humanity when they have none themselves whatsoever? Very true. Anyway, you were trying to end on a fucking positive note, and here I am whining and pissing and moaning again. Bottom line is, look, we're, we're incredibly lucky. We're incredibly lucky to be making stuff. We're incredibly lucky to be involved in any of this on any level. And I consider it a genuine privilege, despite if I sound like I'm whining, I've just contextualized it for you at the moment. I'm coming from a very, very angry place. But it's an incredible privilege. It's an amazing, amazing privilege to sit in a in any environment with a bunch of people who are trying to capture lightning in a bottle, a bunch of alchemists who are trying to go, fuck, this is hard, we've no idea what we're doing, but look, this is possible, and suddenly it happens and everybody goes, fuck, don't breathe. I love that, that's addictive beyond belief, and I'll do it until I fucking die. We hope so as well. <laughs> Tell me, man, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks, folks.